Please take a seat. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that because of the fact that Jesus has died and risen again, that we can experience in him no guilt in life and no fear in death. What a wonderful comfort and assurance that is to us. And Father, as we come to these verses now, help us to learn these things more deeply as we come to the the wisdom of this great chapter. Help me and help us all as we look into these things. Send your spirit to work amongst us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Well, if you could keep your Bible open there, please, at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. That would be a great help. Uh, Thank you. We're just over halfway through now in this uh, series in Ecclesiastes. And we're seeing, aren't we, that the teacher is telling us in this book all about what life is really like as we live here on earth in this fallen creation. And he tells us that it's uh, life in a world that is marked with futility. Uh, Things are marked with transience. Things in this life come and go. And because that is what this world is like, the teacher wants us to realize that it is absolutely impossible for us to find lasting fulfillment and true satisfaction in the things that are here, the things that are under the sun. But mankind, in our foolishness, we don't buy that, do we, by nature? We think that we can find true meaning, lasting gain, lasting satisfaction, in the things that this world has to offer. And so that's how we live our lives by nature. We, we try and fill our lives with whatever possessions and whatever experiences we think will bring us the joy for which our souls thirst. And then the teacher comes along with his book and he says, you've got it all wrong. It is all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. The things of this world, they are passing by. And trying to squeeze some kind of lasting fulfillment out of them is utterly useless. Your schemes for earthly joy, they are all going to come crashing down sooner or later. Now to start with, that sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? But the teacher I want you to see this morning is not a pessimist. He's not writing this book to try and drag us down into a slough of despond. No, he's writing this book so that we learn to live rightly in this fallen world. And to that end, he's got a lot to say here in this seventh chapter. It's a chapter all about wisdom. Wisdom means living God's way in God's world. And there's a lot in this chapter. We'll not cover everything this morning. But we can sum it up in three simple headings, which I'd like for us to do. So the first is this. The teacher says to us, learn wisdom by facing up to death. Learn wisdom by facing up to death. And in God's providence, of course, we come to this passage, don't we, 
the day after the funeral of one of our church members, Mary Doyle. Many of us were here yesterday for the funeral service. And so it's very appropriate, isn't it, that we come to these words this morning. The teacher wants us to realize that the fact of death presents us with an opportunity to learn great wisdom. In the autumn of 1991, in Idaho, in the States, a man called Gerald Sitzer was driving with his wife, their four children, and his mother when their car was struck by a drunk driver. And in that moment, he lost his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter. And sometimes afterwards, uh, he wrote a book about that experience of loss and sorrow and grief. And tellingly, the book was entitled, A Grace Disguised. A Grace Disguised. And that is very much the outlook of the teacher here in Ecclesiastes 7, isn't it? Death, he says, is in some ways a grace disguised. Or as someone else has put it, death is an evangelist. So David Gibson writes these words. Death looks us in the eye and asks us to look at him right back with a steady gaze and allow him to do his work in us. Death is a preacher with a very simple message. Death has an invitation for us. He wants to teach us that the day of our coming death can be a friend to us in advance. The very limitation which death introduces into our life can instruct us about life. Think of it as death's helping hand. It's for this reason that the teacher says what he does there in the opening words of this chapter, a good name is better than precious ointment. I'm sure we'd all agree with that statement, wouldn't we? There's not much point smelling like roses, wearing the best perfume or the most expensive aftershave if your <laughs> reputation is in the dirt. We're all on board with the first part of verse 1, aren't we? And then the second half of verse 1 takes us by surprise, doesn't it? It makes us stop and think. Because the teacher tells us that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now the day of birth is of course a wonderfully happy occasion, isn't it? It's something to celebrate, something which we rightly give thanks for. But what the teacher is saying is that the day of someone's birth doesn't really teach us very much. So when you receive a text message from a friend announcing a birth. The details in that text are very, very basic, aren't they? Uh, they tell you the time of birth, uh, the gender of the baby, the name of the baby, maybe how much they weigh. Hopefully that baby and mommy are, are both doing well. At a push, they might tell you that the baby looks a little bit like his or her mom or, or dad. But at that stage, there's not a great deal more to say is there of course we're filled with happiness when a baby arrives because of the dreams that we have for them for all the potential that they can fulfill but at that stage it is dreams rather than reality it's potential rather than fulfillment and yet how different a funeral service is 
because there is so much to say. Hopefully there is a long lifetime to look back on as we did yesterday. Again, uh, David Gibson writes, when life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem empty and pointless. The lives we touched and the generosity we showed and the love we gave or received now mean so much more. And at a funeral, of course, we're given a stark reminder that all of us are mortal. And unless Jesus comes back first, one day each one of us will die. And so says the teacher, learn wisdom by facing up to death. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. But of course, not everyone wants to listen to what death the evangelist has to say to them. And so they will distract themselves from having to think about death by filling their lives with pleasure instead. And so the teacher continues, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Fools don't want to listen to what death has to say to them, so they fill their lives with laughter and feasting and singing. And of course, there is nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. Indeed, numerous times in the book already, the teacher has told us that it is good to eat and drink and find enjoyment in life. He's told us that these things are actually the gift of God for our enjoyment. But the problem here, though, is that these things, you see, are being used wrongly. They're being used as a kind of anesthetic to take away the pain of having to think about the reality of death. It's a form of escapism, isn't it? Don't think about death. Don't listen to what death has to teach you. When you have to go to the house of mourning, get out of there as quickly as you possibly can and get back to the house of feasting. Have a few drinks, sing a few songs, tell a few jokes. And you'll forget for a while that death even exists. And that the day of your death is edging closer every second. But of course it is escapism, isn't it? And it's all futile. It's all short-lived. The teacher says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. When you light a fire, how long does it take for the, the kindling to, to crackle and then burn up? Well, it's not very long, is it? A, a few minutes? And then literally it's all gone up in smoke. And the teacher says it is the same when we try and use pleasure to escape from the reality of death. It lasts a few minutes, maybe. A few hours at best. And then that's it. And in stark contrast to that, look at verse 3, which again takes us by surprise, doesn't it? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. It's ironic, isn't it? The teacher is saying to us that in order to have a glad heart, a heart that is truly glad, it is necessary at times to have a sad face. 
In other words, it is necessary for us to face up to the reality of death and, and absorb what that teaches us and learn wisdom from it. And then having learned wisdom to find true gladness, gladness of heart. And you see, by getting us to look at death head on, the teacher is not trying to make us depressed. On the contrary, he's showing us actually how to be glad truly. And the question is, well, will you face up to that reality of death? Will you let it teach you about the limitations of your life? That sooner or later, your funeral is coming as well. No amount of partying, no amount of pleasure is going to stop that. Are you ready to die or not? And will you let the reality of death then reshape your approach to life, your goals, your priorities, your attitudes? Most of all, will you trust Jesus with your death? Because for his people, he went there first, didn't he? He paid for all of his people's sin. And then he rose triumphantly over death three days later so that death holds no terrors for the Christian now. The teacher says to us, learn wisdom by facing up to death. Psalm 90, of course, puts it like this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, facing up to death teaches us wisdom. And then secondly, the teacher says to us, apply wisdom in every area of life. Apply wisdom in every area of life. So wisdom's not just for your head. Wisdom is for all of life. It's practical. It's to be applied in all of life. And then in the next few verses, the teacher shows us a number of areas of, of life in which we need to apply wisdom. This wisdom that death can teach us. And the first area in terms of money. There in verse 7, he, he warns us that even if we are a wise person, we are still so vulnerable to being tempted with money. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So tempting to allow just a little bit of dishonesty to creep in in order to have a bit more money. Even a wise person can find their heart being corrupted by that temptation. So listen to the wisdom that death teaches you. If death is the end of all mankind, if you're going to end up six feet under sooner or later, why are you so bothered about trying to be rich? It's pointless, isn't it? You can't take any of it with you. And far better, therefore, to use whatever money you have wisely. Do good with it. And verses 11 and 12 pick up on that idea of money being used with wisdom. And the teacher says wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The teacher is saying coming into a lot of money by inheritance is only good for you if you have wisdom. Because wisdom can preserve your life far better than money can. And then as well as applying wisdom to our view of money, we're also to apply wisdom to our view of time. So verse 8 speaks to that. Verse 8 has in mind the kind of person who is obsessed with the present and therefore they forget about the future. 
And to that kind of person, the teacher says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the wise person is a patient person. They know that not everything comes to them all at once. They don't want everything now. They live in the present, but they have one eye on the future. And they wait for that future patiently. And ultimately, of course, in the context of this chapter, the future includes that reality of death. So why obsess about demanding that we have everything now, straight away, when death is coming and then eternity stretches out before us? And then verse 10 also focuses on the topic of time, but it's got a very different type of person in view here. Verse 10, you see, is written to the person who is so captivated by the past that they despise the present. And to that kind of person, the teacher says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You've heard people say this kind of thing, haven't you? Things aren't like they used to be. Society is going down the drain. And it can give the impression, can't it, that the answer to the world's problems is to to try and recreate the 1950s. And the teacher says to us, that's not wisdom's outlook. Life was just as futile back in the day. Death cast its shadow over mankind back then, just as it does now. And it's very telling, isn't it, that in between these two verses about time, we have a a verse on the subject of anger, which I take to imply that those who are so obsessed with the present that they forget about the future, and those who are so captivated by the past that they despise the present, are both prone to anger as a result of that outlook. One gets angry because the future's not here already, And the other gets angry because the past has been and gone and life's not like it once was. And to both, the teacher says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. And instead, apply wisdom to your view of time. And accept that life here is transient. Things come and go. We don't get everything all at once. Ultimate satisfaction is not in the here and now. And nor can we hang on to a bygone era as if that's what would make us happy. And don't forget that eternity is stretching out before you. So apply wisdom to your view of time. And then down in verses 21 and 22, the teacher applies wisdom to our words. He says, imagine you hear one of your servants talking about you behind your back. I don't know, but you've probably not got any servants Uh, So we might substitute that for for colleagues at work, your employees or your employers or your colleagues in the workplace or maybe others at at school. And they're gossiping about you and they don't realize that actually you're within earshot. And it's not a very pleasant experience, is it? If, If that kind of thing happens, you end up thinking about it for the rest of the day and maybe the rest of the week. And the teacher says to us in verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say. And why not? Well, verse 22 tells us, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, 
don't trouble yourself thinking about what he said or what she might have said behind your back. Because actually all of us sin in what we say, don't we? James chapter 3 tells us that we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. No human being can tame the tongue. And since we all sin in what we say, we need to apply the wisdom that death teaches us to our words. Death teaches us that there is a day of judgment coming. We are destined to die once and then face judgment. And what will that day of judgment entail? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so the teacher says, don't take to heart every bit of gossip that you might hear. Uh, don't stress about what he or she might have said behind your back, what their words meant. Instead, realize that actually you yourself need God's grace to forgive you and to change you. Apply wisdom to your words, says the teacher. And then, fourth and finally, we're to apply, uh, apply wisdom in the area of sexuality as well. Verse 26, the teacher says, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And as you know, it, it's likely, it's possible that this is Solomon writing this, that Solomon is, is the teacher. We don't know that for sure, but it's likely the case. And if it is, he's writing out of his own experience here, isn't he? His own experience of, of falling into sexual sin and then facing the disastrous consequences of that in his life. And it's so tempting, says the teacher, adultery is like a snare, it's like a net, it's like chains and fetters. It's like this trap and you get a bit too close and then suddenly you're trapped in it. And so you need wisdom to escape from it and to steer clear of it. Proverbs 5, chapter 5 tells us, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And you see, these are the four particular areas where the teacher wants us to apply the wisdom that we learn from death. Apply that wisdom in relation to money and time and words and your sexuality. And then there's one other thing the teacher wants us to realize in this chapter. Maybe it's going to surprise you. The teacher wants us to understand wisdom's limitations. Understand wisdom's limitations. Now the teacher has a lot to say about how valuable wisdom is. We've seen already, he has told us that learning wisdom by facing up to the reality of death will ironically make our heart glad, even though our, our face may be sad. In verse 12, he told us that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
In verse 19, he tells us that wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. And as we've just seen, he tells us that the one who is living wisely, the one who is pleasing God, will escape from sexual temptation. So there are many benefits that wisdom has that we're shown in this chapter. But did you notice when we read the chapter earlier on, the teacher actually tells us more about how wisdom has limitations. So verse 13 sums that up. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So the teacher is saying, the reality is we live in a fallen world. We live in a world under the curse of God. And no matter how much wisdom you learn, and no matter how much wisdom you apply, you cannot fix the world. You cannot straighten out the brokenness of this world, and you can't even straighten out the brokenness of your own life by being wise. Understand wisdom's limitations. And then in verse 14, he demonstrates that by showing us that wisdom does not guarantee prosperity in this life. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So God may prosper you, but God also may send you adversity in life. And so being wise doesn't guarantee that you're going to be financially secure or secure in any other way. And then in verse 15 and following, the teacher shows us that wisdom does not guarantee longevity either. He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now for sure, on average, and all other things being equal, foolish people die younger than wise people do. It is a fact, isn't it? Christians live longer than unbelievers on average, all other things being equal. But the teacher wants us to realize that that is no cast iron guarantee that if you learn God's wisdom and if you apply God's wisdom in your life that you're going to live to a ripe old age. And you see the point that he's making, don't you? Wisdom has limitations. For all its value in this life, it has limitations still. It is the right way to live in this fallen world. But even if you learn wisdom, and even if you apply wisdom, you are still in a fallen world. Who can make straight these crooked things? And this leaves the teacher more than a little frustrated, doesn't it? He's learned wisdom, and he's applied wisdom, but he's come up against these limitations of wisdom. And there is this longing in the chapter that someone, just one person, could figure it all out. He might say that this chapter longs for someone greater than Solomon, doesn't it? So look at verses 23 and 24 for a start. The teacher has been telling us to learn wisdom. And here he longs that there would be someone who would know all wisdom. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's saying, I've tried to learn wisdom, but the totality of wisdom in all of its entirety, in all of its depth, is just beyond me. Is there anyone, just one person, who could have a mind filled with all the treasures of wisdom, every last bit of it? But 
Who can find it out? And as well as that, he's been telling us to apply wisdom in every area of life. And in verse 20, do you see, he longs that there could be someone who would do that perfectly. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And the teacher is asking, is there not just one person who could know all wisdom and then live it out in a perfect life, free from sin, a righteous life, even in this fallen world? And the teacher couldn't find anyone who fitted the bill. He knew that he himself didn't. And he knew that there was no one else on earth at that time who fitted the bill either. And of course, you know where all of this is pointing us, don't you? It's pointing to Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. He is the one who perfectly learned wisdom. And so he answers that longing of verse 24, doesn't he? Luke's gospel tells us that the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. When he was fully grown, Jesus then compared himself favorably, favorably to Solomon, the most wise person who had ever lived up to that point. Jesus said, didn't he, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus didn't just learn the wisdom of God perfectly. As well as that, he applied it perfectly. And so he answers that longing of verse 20 as well, doesn't it? He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He did good. He never sinned, though he was tempted in every way that we're tempted. He was tempted to be selfish when it came to money. In terms of time, he was tempted to be impatient and get angry. He was tempted to sin in his words. He was tempted towards sexual sin, just as we are. But at every turn, he applied wisdom perfectly and lived the perfect life. And you see, Jesus is what the teacher longs for here in Ecclesiastes 7. Because in him are found all the treasures of wisdom. Learn from him. Learn from Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, there is so much in this great chapter. And really, we've only started to unpack it uh, this morning. But insofar as we have looked into these things... We pray that you would drive them into our hearts and help us, first of all, to learn wisdom by facing up to death. Help us to face up to the reality of our own mortality, the end of all mankind, and so be ready for death and ready for eternity, and then live now in the light of that. And as we face up to that reality of death, may our hearts be glad, even though our face is sad. And then help us to apply that wisdom in every area of life, in terms of our view of money, our view of time, our use of words, our sexuality. And we know that we fall short in every area. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. But we thank you that at one time there was, 
and he's now risen from the dead and he's on the throne of heaven. And so we praise you for Jesus, who is our wisdom. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom. And we thank you that in his life on earth, he learned wisdom perfectly and then he applied it perfectly. And so help us to look to him, help us to trust in him and follow him all the days of our short life here. We ask it all in his name. Amen.